Turning the world upside down. If you have a Bible at hand, I encourage you to turn to Acts 17. We have been looking at the book of Acts under this title of turning the world upside down. And that's a phrase which comes from verse 6 in this section that we are looking at today. There it says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Now, those were not words that were spoken by way of a compliment. They're words of accusation. But the worst thing that can be true of a church is not that we are accused of turning the world upside down or even accused of causing trouble. The worst thing for a church is if we're seen as being insignificant, inconsequential. I think of a, a minister. Uh, he was saying about his church, which was right in the center of a town. And he was talking to somebody at the church and trying to explain what church he was minister of. And the person had no idea, tried to explain even where the church was. And then eventually the person able to say, oh, that's next door to the grocery shop, whatever shop it was. And so often a church can be there and, and people not even aware of it's there. And that's not what the church should be. The church needs to be having an impact on society, on the community around us. And we've been looking at the book of Acts to see how is it that that first church had such an impact that would be a church described as turning the world upside down. Now, let's look at some key elements from this passage today as to how a church has an impact. We have, first of all, the preaching in verses 2 to 3. A number of things we can say about this preaching. First of all, it is biblical. It says there in verse 2, And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He didn't share his own ideas, but he opened up and explained the revealed Word of God. He understood that the Word of God was his great weapon. It was the Word of God that was sharper than a two-edged sword. He had confidence in the Word and in the power of that Word to change people's lives. And if we're going to be a church of impact, we too need to have confidence in the Word and see it as one of our greatest weapons. So it was biblical. Secondly, it was thoughtful preaching. This was preaching that was aimed at people's thoughts. It was aimed at their minds. Its purpose was to make people to think, and it sought to win people over with sound argument. Look what it says there, halfway down verse 2. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, there are three words there which summarize this type of thoughtful preaching. It says, he reasoned, he was explaining, he was proving. The word translated here, first of all, as reasoned, is the Greek word from which we get our word dialogue, which is a two-way conversation. Now, in this context, it doesn't necessarily mean there was a two-way conversation. Oh, there might have been. But what it does mean that Paul read the people. He was aware of where the people were at 
and sought to bring the people from where they were at on with Himself. This was not a, a ministry which was just a, a recycling of old cliches. It wasn't a ministry either that was playing on people's emotions. It was a thinking ministry, considering how to win people over with sound biblical arguments. The next word there is explaining. The word explaining, Eric Alexander says, carries the idea of untangling as you would with a ball of wool or a ball of string. Good preaching untangles the strands of biblical teaching. It brings out the different strands from the Bible to make it clear for the hearers to understand. Now, our ability to do this, to bring out these different strands from God's Word, it grows as we come to know and understand the Bible more and more. And if you're someone who struggles and understand the Bible, keep at it. The more you study, the more you learn the Bible, the more you'll be able to do that. And so, the task not just of the minister, but the task of all believers is in our daily conversations to give a reason for the hope that's in us, to be able to share these different strands of biblical teaching. So, that's the explaining. It's bringing out these different strands. But this preaching was also a proving ministry, it says there. This carries a strong element of conviction, a conviction in the sense of really believing. This was not weak or double-minded preaching. It was strong because it came from someone who was convinced of what they believed and really desired that others would believe it also. So, it wasn't a sort of take-it-or-leave-it attitude. It was done with a passion. It was done with power because of the conviction the person had about this truth. So, this is the thoughtful preaching. It's a thinking preaching aimed at the mind. Thirdly, this preaching was Christ-centered. Look in verse 3. It says, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. The gospel is Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. The good news and our only hope is, is not primarily a system of belief, but the person of Jesus. Now, the system of belief should help us to understand Jesus. But it's Jesus. Who He is and what He has done is our only hope. Paul preached Christ crucified. The Jews didn't want that. They wanted Paul to do miracles. The Greeks didn't want that. They wanted fine-sounding wisdom, philosophical thought. But Paul would not be distracted. He preached the message of Jesus. And you know, what an amazing privilege we have as a church to offer to this community around us. What is our role as a church? To offer Jesus. What's your role in Sunday school and Bible class and the girls' brigade, the boys' brigade, you fellowship among the ladies, among the men? What's your role? To offer Jesus. That's our role. That's our task. And we must always keep that clear. 
we are there to offer Jesus to people because he alone is the hope and salvation. And the fourth thing about this preaching was it was authoritative. Look there in verse 7. It's going down, it says about them, and Jason has received them, this is the accusation against them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment or two in greater detail. But part of this accusation against Paul was that Paul taught that not only that Jesus is a Savior to be trusted in, but that Jesus is the king to be obeyed. It was authoritative. And so it, was a, it was a teaching that came with a command. It was a teaching that demanded a response. It was not a sort of teaching which was like a, a nice, easy little bedtime story. It was a teaching that shook you up. It came with authority. So, biblical, thoughtful, Christ-centered, authoritative. And then, secondly, we see the response in verses 4 to 9. And first of all, we see the acceptance of faith here in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Now, how these people became new believers is, is interesting here. Do you notice what it says there? They were persuaded. Now, they weren't forced into this. They weren't emotionally manipulated into this. They weren't hammered down into this. They were moved by Paul's reasoning from Scripture. I wonder, have you been persuaded? My mind immediately goes to King Agrippa. Do you remember King Agrippa, who Paul would later come before? who said he was almost persuaded. Probably he was thinking, give me a wee bit more time and I'll get persuaded. But sadly, there's no account of that ever happening. And that's maybe you here today, you're almost persuaded. You, you know there's truth in this. You wouldn't be here otherwise. But you're just holding back from that step of faith, of embracing this truth and standing for Christ. Listen, many people are lost for eternity who were almost persuaded. Be among these people who were persuaded and embraced Christ. But sadly, we had to come secondly to the hatred of unbelief in verses 5 to 9. Look there at verse 5. It says, But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. As I said to the boys and girls, Jason was probably the person who Paul and his companions were staying with. And when they couldn't get Paul, they vented their anger on Jason. And today this still happens when preaching gets under people's skins. Often the people's anger is directed to those close to the preacher and they suffer for it. We need to be very aware that what was happening in Thessalonica here, it's a spiritual battle, and the forces of evil were seeking to prevent the spread of the gospel 
and their tactics here were less than honorable. And it's amazing, you know, when people are opposed to the gospel. I was speaking recently in a bit of a debate with an atheist, and you know, they don't fight for, <laughs> uh, they get quite nasty so quickly, and that. And this is what we see here. Jason is dragged before the city authorities. His captors are angry. They are loud. And they seek to malign Paul as a preacher. Look at verse 6 and 7, what it says here. And when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of their brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king Jesus. Now, the phrase these men have turned the world upside down was basically saying Paul was a troublemaker. Uh, it's interesting, Elijah, wasn't he called a troublemaker by Ahab as well? And we need to realize the work of the gospel as it enters a community, as it enters a family, is unsettling. The gospel challenges the previous status quo that was a person experienced. And there will be a kickback against that as the gospel brings us change. And in gospel work, we need to be prepared for that, particularly when we're trying to break into new territory, that will happen. The other thing to notice here is the devil's tactic. Paul is maligned here by a half-truth. It says there, in halfway down verse 7, they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. Now, yes, Paul was preaching there is a new king called Jesus. But the way it's being presented here is as if Paul was advocating rebellion against Caesar and rebellion against the Romans. And that is certainly not something that Paul ever taught. And you read, Romans chapter 13, which was probably written at a time when Nero was the emperor, he calls on believers to submit to the ruling authorities over them. Elsewhere, he calls on people to pray for the ruling authorities. So, he never calls for rebellion against the Romans. So, the way it's been presented here was not the whole story, was not the whole truth. It was a half-truth. Now, this tactic of maligning the preacher with a half-truth or a part of a story is a tactic that the devil continues to use today against preachers and against the church. This happens outside the church, and that's to be expected. As I say, the devil will not fight fair. But it also happens, sadly, within the church, as partial truths are shared and not the whole story in order to darken someone's reputation. The opposition here was very challenging, but it would not stop the spread of the gospel. And wonderfully, and this is the encouraging thing, an encouraging thing even as a church or as preachers are maligned, the encouraging thing is that God will have His way and will even use these dark schemes for His purposes. And this brings us to our third point, which is the flexibility. Paul and Silas immediately leave Thessalonica in verse 10. It's too risky for them to stay. And later on, when opposition follows them to Berea, 
Paul leaves there to continue to Athens as well, verses 13 to 15. And at that time, Silas and Timothy are able to remain in Berea. Now, the important point here is the flexibility that Paul and his companions showed in their ministry. Now, this was a, a flexibility which we have previously seen in the book of Acts. Remember when Paul was prevented from going where he wanted to go in the region of Turkey? He wanted to share the gospel in Asia and was prevented from doing that. He wanted to go up into Bithynia and was prevented from that. He then listened to the call and a vision to cross over to Macedonia. Paul changed his plans, both as God guided him and also as circumstances required it. This flexibility in the work of the gospel is something important both for individual believers and for the church to be flexible, I guess. Let me illustrate just a You'll see a picture coming up, and it's a picture of what are called uh, Stug buggies. These are buggies alongside quad bikes, which are being used by Ukrainian special forces. And the story of how that great convoy of Russian tanks was heading down to Kiev and how it was prevented and how it was stopped is absolutely fascinating, as Ukrainian special forces met them, not with tanks, but with buggies and quad bikes and drones. And they nipped in and out of the forest, nipped out of the forest, attacked the tanks and disappeared before they could be hit. And they constantly did that. And they managed to cripple that whole massive convoy. So on the one hand, you had this great Russian force which were totally inflexible. And you had these Ukrainian forces who were much smaller, but much more flexible. And there's a real danger when, as a church, we are very rigid in what we do and not open to be able to change when change is needed or when change is spoken to by God. And we need to be aware that churches who aren't willing to change are often churches that will die. One of the problems is that we can have such a full program, we can be so busy, we can have little room for flexibility. When you look at Paul and his companions, what you see are a, a group of people who spent a lot of time waiting on God. You read the letters and you can see Paul talks about praying night and day. They didn't look too far ahead, and therefore they could be flexible as the Spirit and circumstances required. I was speaking recently to a Clark a session of another church, and they were saying that they had been wrestling after uh, COVID and lockdown with the busyness of their church, and, and they got the leaders together, and the elders discussed this, and everybody accepted they were too busy, and it was hindering them from doing certain stuff, but nobody was willing to stop what they were doing. And he said, in the end of the conclusion, well, let's stop the evening service, he says, which was, says, what a horrendous thought, one of the most important meetings in the life of the church, and they didn't go down that road. But that's, they were totally inflexible. In a church, you need structure. In a church, you need planning. I, I remember one time a youth fellowship, and nothing was ever planned. They would have meetings, and they'd just wait for the Spirit to lead, and to be honest, it was often a disaster. 
You need structure. You need planning. You take the Corinthian church, which had so little structure, it was getting out of control. So you need structure. You need planning. But on the other hand, you need to be very well organized. But you need not be dead. You can be so organized, but not flexible or alive. And the challenge, flick it on there, please, the slide, fellas. The challenge is how do we have a structure and a planning? And you need it when you do a lot of things. But have the flexibility when God guides or when the circumstances require. I'm not giving you the answer. I'm giving you the question. And it's a question for elders. It's a question for organization leaders. Take our studies in the book of Acts. We're looking at the book of Acts. We're looking at, at how God wants His church to act. And surely as we study that, God is wanting us to change. God is wanting us to go in a different direction. Are we open to that? Are we open to how God leads it? Or have we become like that big Russian convoy, so big and wieldy, we don't have the flexibility to change as God desires. I think the biggest challenge in this is not primarily a challenge for Kirk Session or a challenge for organizations. It's primarily a challenge for each individual Christian. Are you open to change by the Word of God? I remember hearing Professor Edward Donnelly Speaking, some of the boys and girls will know his son and daughter who teach in the academy. I remember him preaching and saying, when's the last time you, something you did was changed by the Word of God? Are we really being impacted by the Word? Are we flexible to change what the Word is doing? At the beginning, at the end of August, we had a week of prayer. I found it a very, very encouraging week. The times of prayer I found so beneficial, so helpful personally. But if you ask me to summarize the end of the week, what my thoughts were, my thoughts would be this. We are not about to experience revival. We are nowhere near experiencing revival. Because when revival happens, you see it in the book of Acts. And this is one thing we've been learning from Acts, but it's not changing people. When God's people are committed to prayer and meeting together to pray, and all God's people are serious about that, that's when revival comes. Are you flexible to let the king speak to you? One final point here, point four, is the openness in verses 11 to 12. Moving on to Berea here. We read here in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well 
as men. And here we see a great commitment and devotion to the Word of God. They tested what was being heard in the Word of God, and it says they daily gave themselves over to the study of the Word of God. So, one hour on a Sunday morning wasn't going to do them. They really were committed to the study of the Word. And the result of this, that many were saved, including many of the leading Greek women in verse 12. Now, I wonder, why were the women particularly highlighted here in verse 12? And why were they also highlighted back in verse 4 in Thessalonica, in many of them coming to faith? I think they were highlighted because this was unusual. If you take the Jewish background, you wouldn't waste time teaching women. That's the Jewish mindset. Where the Christian power of the, when the Spirit moves is that women are equally affected by the Word as men. But there's a challenge here for all of us about how seriously we take the study of God's Word. Times alone in our own homes and time with God's people in studying the Word and going deeper in the Word and deeper with Christ should be our priority. You see a picture coming up of the, the queues to see the coffin of the queen. I have a, a niece who queued 11 and a half hours yesterday, started half 10 yesterday morning, and uh, just before 10 o'clock last night, she got in to see the coffin of the queen, and we were able to see her on the, the TV, actually. We got a wee glimpse of her in doing that. Some people queuing 12 hours, some people queuing 16 hours, some people have queued 24 hours to see the coffin of a dead queen. Now, I'm not belittling it. There's part of me who would love to be able to do it and to be part of that. But listen, tonight, you're going to have the opportunity to hear the living king. Pre-communion, you're going to have the opportunity to come and hear the living king. Pre-communion, our theme is listening to the king. Now, you think if people are willing to queue 12 to 24 hours to see the coffin of a dead queen, how committed are you to come to hear the king? You see, when we come and sit under God's word, and when we do that in a proper manner, praying for the spirit of God, Christ meets with us. What a privilege. Paul and his companions were ministering in very difficult situations in Thessalonica and Berea. But because these situations were not difficult, this, because they were difficult, this didn't mean defeat. The gospel advanced. The church grew. And this is the power of God's Word when it's breathed on by the Spirit. May we be a church that is committed to the Word of God, committed to studying it, committed to teaching it, committed to praying for its power to be set loose in every aspect of our life of our church. When that really happens, then we will be described as a church, as a people who turn the world upside down. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth.
And Father, we just pray that you would cause us, Father, to be faithful to your word and to your truth. Father, so often we're like the disciples in Gethsemane who cried, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Father, we want to be more faithful. We want to go deeper with you, with Christ and his word. We want to be, Father, the people you call us to be. We want to be the church that is mirrored on the book of Acts, on your truth. Oh, Father, give us the grace. Breathe upon us by your Spirit. Breathe upon every individual in this building. Breathe upon every Christian. Revive us, O oh God. Breathe upon the unsaved. Bring them to new life in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.